In much the same way that the internet changed the world uh, and changed how we interact with information, Bitcoin has changed how humanity interacts with value and money. Hello there from Nashville in Tennessee. How are you all? You having a good week? I'm out here in the US for a couple of weeks making some shows. I'm also making film, which is going to be very cool. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got David Zell back on the show. Now, you've probably, well, you've maybe heard a couple of shows I've made with David Zell before. He works at and founded the Bitcoin Policy Institute, and I wanted to get an update on all the work he's been doing, especially with all the crazy shit that's been going on this year. I know he's been down in D.C., trying to influence policy, trying to work for Bitcoiners. So I just wanted an update from him, find out about what's been going on. Also, we made a donation towards the Bitcoin Policy Institute, believe their work for Bitcoin is very important. So we've added some links in the show notes about that. If you've got some Bitcoin, you've got some additional Bitcoin, you want to support what they're doing, please check that out. Right. If you've got any questions about this or anything else, please do reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. I was taking a calculus class over the winter interim, just like for fun. And you what? <laughs> I was taking a calculus class, like a multivariable calculus class. For fun? Over when? Over like the last two and a half weeks. So like Alabama offers like a winter interim semester. So it's like a whole semester in like two and a half weeks. You and I have very different ideas of fun. <laughs> but like I, there were like word problems and I was just like fucking around with ChatGPT and like I would plug some of the problems in and it would like take you step by step through how it got to its answer each sort of step seemed logical, but it was just like fucking wrong. I saw a really simple version of that. There was someone put on Twitter that they said, when I was six, my sister was three. When I'm 70, how old my sister be? And it said 73. Yeah, yeah. It falls for some like basic logic traps and things like that. But I did see on Twitter where these like two computer science people have come out with a software that can tell whether or not a sample of writing has been generated by ChatGBT or a human. For now. For now. So I think some of the kids who are trying to like chat GBT their essays might might get fucked. We're, we're still early. We're still early. Yeah. Uh, we Have we used it on an intro yet? On a description? Yeah, we used it on the Danny Scott one because we talked about it in the show. Oh, right. Okay. So uh, Danny was testing getting our show descriptions being written by chat GBT. Ah. And uh, how, did you have to make any changes to it? I don't think I made any on purpose. Uh, right. Okay. <laughs> you have to read it and see if you can tell. <laughs> That's interesting. But that saves how long? How much work? I mean, it's not that long, but it's, it saves work, for sure. It, would you change it if you weren't, like, doing a test? Yeah, 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 100%. It was just because it was funny and we brought it up in the show, but it doesn't give you, like, a, a, a perfect description, but it's pretty close. Like, it's not bad. Does it learn? Does ChatGPT learn? I don't really know enough about how it works. I don't know. Yeah, because if it's learning, it sh- if it's AI, it should be learning. It should be improving. I don't know. That's a question for my my girlfriend. I don't know. I'm kind of a Luddite, honestly. It's, it's, look, it's super interesting to see where it goes because if it gets to the point where we could do all our intros without, uh, you know, without somebody else doing it, that saves what an hour of work. Yeah. Well, I, I think it could replace me. I don't. Did you see? I tweeted like right when it came out. I asked ChatGPT to like write a defense of like why Bitcoin is like good for society, and it like you know did better than half the fucking maxis on Twitter do at like justifying Bitcoin. <laughs> I don't think it can replace me because it learns and I don't learn shit. So uh, I can stay a moron. Um, yeah, I mean, look, if that say, oh, do you know what would be interesting, Danny? Can it listen to audio? Don't think so yet, but I, I could be wrong. Do you know, if it could listen to the audio and pull out the show notes and the links, 
That would be good. Yeah. I mean, Neil's going to be out of a job. <laughs> sorry, sorry, bro. My, that's my actual bro. Yeah, 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 I had a conversation with him yesterday. Okay. We're very different. I can tell. Yeah, very yeah. different. He's the smart one. Um, anyway, man, how are you? Dude, I'm good. It's great to be back. It's always, always good to see you. Yeah, you look great. You look like you've lost like 20 pounds. Uh, I've actually lost like 15 pounds since our last recording. You look good. How you? How do you do it, man? Uh, I need to lose. I need to lose like fifty pounds. Stop being a piece of shit and like <laughs> oh, I don't know fucked. nothing. Nothing crazy. Just like not drinking and like being active and paying it. Like not door dashing all my meals. Like I was. I was kind of just being a degenerate. I was working really hard and just like not prioritizing the right things. So yeah. we have a Deliveroo in the UK, and mm. I've habitually been using that for my meals, and I've been not exercising, all that same shit. So yeah. uh, I'm gonna try not drink for 2023. Nice. I don't think I am either. Uh, so we can do that together. Yes. Although our last mutual pact did not go over so well, considering we. <laughs> do, you, do you know what that is? It's like everything I try and give up, uh, the vaping's the hardest. Yeah. Well, people, I, I told people I wasn't going to drink up air first. <laughs> I don't need to breathe. <laughs> well, I told I told people I was going to give up drinking, and some of the, like my friends were you know impressed, and it's like, well, n- no, this isn't like a flex. Like I just don't like to drink that much, so it's not like the real challenge would be you know something that I'm actually addicted to. I'm just fortunate to not be an alcoholic yeah i don't find drinking too hard but like i'm either on or off with it so like Mm. if i'm on i would have drunk on the flight on the way over (laughs) actually you'd be like wasted right now during this interview (laughs) well i actually i'd get to the airport and i'd have a glass of champagne Uh. and then i'd get on the plane i'd drink wine most of the way have a sleep and then i'd get here and we probably would have gone down to a bar and had a couple of beers i would have probably gone out with you tonight and you know pines and probably had a few beers and and when we're away on trips like this, I drink most evenings because most evenings we're out for dinner with people. Right. Uh, I don't drink in the house too much at home, but like I'm on or I'm off. Right. I'm not, there's no moderation. And uh, like my dad, my, I hadn't seen my dad since COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, he doesn't fly and he lives in Ireland. Yeah. And so he's come over. He's 74. He looks fucking great. And my dad's never been a drink. Like doesn't drink spirits, doesn't drink wine. He's only ever drunk beer. But he's always been the guy like has two or three beers and then he's done. He didn't drink for three years after my mum died. He looks fucking great. Yeah. Like he's in good shape and he looks great. So I'm like, and then you see like other people that don't look so great. And I'm like, I don't know, man. Yeah, it's literal poison. Yeah. I wonder if I'm done with it forever. Yeah. Now, Peter, I have to bring this up. Uh, oh. I was driving up here thinking about this. Were you having a beer on the way? <laughs> a little road beer? <laughs> nah. Uh, do you remember that? I do, yeah, vividly. Uh, thank God for editing. Uh, no, but you actually called... Did the, we edit it? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Let's not talk about that. No, you don't. <laughs> but, um, Hold on, what we should uh, say. Uh, We're not talking about you drink driving. <laughs> no, 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 no. It was, my, it was not me. Yeah, yeah, it's not what it was. Yeah, but okay. you actually called... Well, not that the bottom is necessarily in, but you called the bottom uh, like a while ago. Because I remember I texted you or I signal messaged you like six or seven months ago when Bitcoin was at like 35. And I was like, you know, what's what's your bottom call? And you immediately responded and said 15K, which I think is the lowest we've been so far. Did we hit 15? Or was it 15 and a half? I don't know if it was 15 even. I think it was started with 15. I yeah, about 15 and a half. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe you should just like quit podcasting and be a trader or something. <laughs> I started podcasting because I was a terrible trader. Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> like 2000 and 2017 is when I kind of started into 16. And I, I, there's a whole tweet thread on it. I turned 32,000 pounds into something like 1.2 million. And then trading? 
Yeah, I was buying fucking everything. I was buying like every coin from those a dash. I love dash. I bought I bought like five hundred pound of Ripple and sold it for thirty thousand. I bought <laughs> uh, Litecoin, Bitcoin, Ethereum. I bought Ethereum at nine. I bought Gollum, like anything you can think of. I bought. I just bought everything. Yeah, and it would go up, and I'd sell, and I'd buy something else. And I was like, I'm fucking genius. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the shit of this. And so it gets to like the end of the year, and I'm like. I'm essentially a millionaire here. Yeah. Bought myself a watch. Bought a car. I tell you, it's quite a funny. So when I used to uh, like have a big spend, it would dump. So I, I was getting on a flight from hit from the UK in, and I bought myself a watch. I was like, I always wanted a nice watch. Bought a watch. There was no internet on the planes back. Fucking no internet on the plane yesterday. But there's no internet on the planes back then. I landed, and, and the whole market dumped thirty percent. I was like, damn it. <laughs> and then the market came back up, and I bought a car. Damn it. Dumped the next day, um, but I thought I was a genuinely thought I was a genius, and then, then when it all started to crash, I just thought it would come back, and it never did. So I rode it all the way up, and then all the way back Round down. Round tripped it, yeah. yeah. And by the time I'd paid off my tax, it was like I had like a handful of Bitcoin left. My my top point, I had a because I used to keep a spreadsheet what the value was in Bitcoin. Right. Uh, my top, I was I had one hundred eighty three Bitcoin in Bitcoin and shitcoins. Yeah. And then, like I say, it was like less than 20 by the time I was done. Um, and Bitcoin was at like 3K. And then I had to sell some to pay my tax. It was it was brutal. So, no, if I called 15, I mean, that was like a figure in the air. What do I think? I mean, what I thought was like, you, you tend to bottom out at the top of a cycle. But I just thought we would dump into that top. Yeah. Uh, but that's pure luck. Yeah, um, well, you called it. I thought I'd, I thought I'd bring that up. You have to show me that text. I can't even remember it. Yeah, uh, actually, I don't know if I have. I got locked out of my signal. So, but if I like, gone. if I had any conviction, I would have sold my Bitcoin <laughs> and bought back at that point, and I didn't. So, yeah, it's been pretty brutal, man. Brutal. What since what March, April? Yeah. Well, yeah. I think the top was like November twenty one. Was it really that long? I, I thought we. I, th- I thought we had a good. I thought we had a second November. top in February. No, it was like November twenty one. Yeah, I've kind of enjoyed it, honestly. There's things I enjoy and things I don't enjoy. Like, uh, I enjoy, like, wiping out bullshit. Yeah. Um, uh, I enjoy the lesson. Like, right. Like, my own personal lessons and things I've got totally wrong. Right. Uh, you know, willing to put my hand up about those. And, um, but I don't enjoy seeing people lose a lot of money. That sucks. Yeah. And there's been a lot of that. Um, and look, our business relies on sponsorships right. at the moment. Well, so does mine, right? Yeah. Like I run a, a Bitcoin nonprofit. So, go. I mean, that's obviously uh, not a great thing to be doing when the market is down, but uh, it's really tough to like explain to people what I do for work because no one really understands what a think tank is and no one really understands what Bitcoin is. Ask uh, ChatGBT. <laughs> <laughs> and so then you say... What does, what does David Tell do for a job? What is, <laughs> what is a think tank? And so then you say like, oh, I, I run like a Bitcoin think tank and it always kind of, you know, either people's eyes glaze over or they like really want to sit down and talk about it. And I think the conversations when the market is down tend to be better because people, they like notice like, huh, like you're clearly into this for more than sort of just like moon boy reasons. Like you, you know, you must have some sort of like, uh, sort of, you must believe this is some sort of like helping us achieve some sort of normative good. Like that there is something like useful and like you're passionate. There's like some sort of ideological, bent whereas like when the price is high and you're like oh i like advocate for bitcoin i think the default assumption is uh well you're just sort of bag bumping and Mm -hmm. so i kind of enjoy like the follow-up questions of like 
wait, so you're spending all your time advocating for this thing that's like, you know, that most people believe is like dead. It's down like whatever it is, 70%. So I kind of like that framing of like, no, like let me, you know, the fact that I'm doing this in a bear market, the fact that we're all doing this in a bear market, like demonstrates that there's something like much deeper than sort of just the financial like benefit that some people have with with Bitcoin. Well, I think that's one of the lessons from this bear market. Like I remember during the the bull market, like every time Bitcoin went up a thousand dollars, I would retweet the previous one of a thousand dollars, and I would like it's become this tweet thread, and I was and like. I regret that. Yeah, it's so cringy. It's like cringy and it's wrong and it's the wrong incentives. To the point now with the football club, I wrote a whole article on there about why you should not buy Bitcoin. <laughs> like, I, I don't want you to buy Bitcoin. I want you to learn about it, but I don't want you to buy Bitcoin. Yeah. And so that's just one of those lessons from a bear market. For me, Right. you is a bit different, but like you were like 12 when you discovered Bitcoin or something. 13, but... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I was collecting stickers. Yeah, again, I was not a. I don't really have my my 2013 holdings, so I'm 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 not a not a secret whale or anything. But well, listen, look, not everybody would have heard your previous shows. We've always got new people coming in. Uh, let's explain to people what the BPI is, what it is you've created. Yeah, uh, so we actually just had the one year anniversary of BPI. Uh, yeah, it's crazy. Uh, but the Bitcoin Policy Institute is a think tank that I started with my friend Grant. Uh, what is a think tank? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, in the sort of most abstract sense, a think tank is a nonprofit uh, or an organization that uh, sort of amalgamates like expertise to uh, kind of influence policy or influence the thinking around policy. Um, usually think tanks have some sort of like ideological bent, um, or some sort of like, uh, sort of meta narrative that they're advancing. Um, so, you know, you've probably heard of things like the Brookings Institute, like nope. Cato Institute. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, that makes sense. So the Cato is sort of the uh, sort of libertarian right center, right kind of think tank. Brookings is sort of the pinnacle of like think tanks, kind of the center left, uh, like equivalent, uh, but uh, BPI sort of uh, our sort of bent is that Bitcoin is good for the world. Um, so I guess what we do is uh, we kind of have an interdisciplinary cohort of academics. So uh, economists, lawyers, uh, philosophers, climate scientists, national security scholars, uh, who we kind of uh, employ to write and think about the implications of uh, Bitcoin as like an emerging monetary technology for the United States and for liberal democracies and for, you know, the, the globe generally. So we're not like lobbyists. Uh, we're, you know, technically like a charity. Uh, so we're not sort of lobbying people on, on policy, but, uh, instead trying to do some of like the intellectual groundwork in DC that would support good policy. I mean, I, I joke with like Bitcoiners that a lot of what we do is take insights that, uh, people had on uh, the talk forums like a decade ago and just like put them in a fancy format <laughs> that like people in DC are like used to seeing. Cause you can't like print out a Twitter thread and be like, look at this, you know, it could be the most brilliant analysis ever. Uh, but you know, there's sort of a, we were talking about with chat GBT a second ago, like these epistemic heuristics, there are epistemic heuristics in, in DC. And so uh, a screenshot of a talk forum blog post is not going to be very persuasive but taking that exact same information, citing a couple of sources, and you know, putting it out from a group of twelve PhDs or whatever, 
with the letterhead on the top and the logo, like, you know, you get taken a little bit more seriously. And so the, I guess the reason I started it was I was in DC. I was working for Bitcoin magazine. I was their director of policy and public affairs. Uh, And one of my first trips up there, I was like meeting with some of the politicians who are ostensibly pro Bitcoin. Uh, And Really, I kind of credit uh, Representative Warren Davidson in some ways with up in Ohio. Yeah, with starting with my sort of the inspiration to start BPI because I asked him like, you know, what can we do? Um, like, you're up here in DC, you're you're fighting for Bitcoin. Like, what do you need? And he said, uh, credible research and information. Like, my colleagues uh, are you know bringing all of this sort of credentialed research on Bitcoin, saying why it's bad, saying why it's dumb, saying why it's a Ponzi scheme. You know, and I can't exactly, you know, uh, uh, bring a copy of Bitcoin magazine onto like the congressional floor and say like, well, these people think differently. It's not a credible source. No offense, David Bailey. <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's not perceived as a credible source in certain circles. Um, you know, I've always been kind of like a nerd. I like research. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, it kind of just made sense. Like, okay, um, let me see how many academics I can find who are interested in Bitcoin and found all of them on Twitter. (laughs) Like, I mean, Matthew Pines like had a couple hundred followers and he was just putting out these like really nuanced and like insightful threads on Bitcoin, like DM Tim, DM Troy Cross, like all these people just kind of like shot them DMs and kind of amassed this group. There were these philosophers, uh, Andrew Bailey, Craig Warmke, Bradley Rettler, who had this little group called like resistance money. So they were kind of like even earlier than us and sort of forming like a Bitcoin research collective. Uh, and so I just kind of formalized it into like a think tank structure and, uh, you know, raised some money for it. Um, mostly from, uh, uh, David Bailey, from Michael Saylor, uh, friends, uh, who were just like Bitcoiners and thought this was like a cool project. Uh, and, and yeah, the, the sort of top shelf thesis was that in most policy issues, uh, you are sort of stuck debating within like a very sort of like strict, you know, utilitarian framework, like uh, take abortion or gay marriage or gun control or whatever. Everyone already knows what the issue is. And so it's about sort of like weighing pros and cons. But with Bitcoin, um, my sort of thesis was that we still have an opportunity to define the thing that is being debated, um, which is like really rare. Um, so in high school and college, I was a like a, a debater, like that was my... That was like my thing. Um, and I was a, a national champion in, in high school and in college uh, in debate. And you learn from doing that that, uh, you know, when you can sort of control like the definition of the thing that you're debating, well, you have a massive advantage. And so unlike all these other issues that are sort of like baked in, nobody knows what the hell Bitcoin is. And so uh, there's sort of two thoughts that like emerge from that. One is well, how do you expect there to be good policy on Bitcoin if people don't believe that it's socially useful or good, if they think it's just some sort of like speculative, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, like digital Ponzi scheme, or if they think it's just kind of a shadowy supercoder nonsense? Uh, how do you expect good policy if people don't believe that it's good? And then on the flip side, the second thought is, well, if people understand why Bitcoin is something that strengthens liberal democracies, why Bitcoin is something that uh, accelerates sort of like freedom and uh, uh, all these sort of like uh, central axioms of like America and like open societies. Well, then I would expect policy to 
be a lot better. Uh, and so that's sort of what BPI does is like we're researching Bitcoin from all these different policy relevant perspectives. Um, but you know, making sort of a well-researched, uh, intellectually honest, uh, uh, case that Bitcoin is like this awesome thing. Uh, and that it's like really good for the world. Cognizant of like risks and downsides and all of that. Like, you know, I don't think we're like a propaganda outlet. Um, you know, all of our work, you know, tends to address the counter arguments to what we're saying. So, uh, yeah, it's like, we definitely paint a, a, an optimistic worldview or an optimistic picture of, of Bitcoin, but uh, it's one that I think like we all believe. Uh, so it's cool. Uh, national debating champion. Mm-hmm. What competition was that? Uh, so in high school I did public forum debate, um, which was like two V two debate. Uh, and then in college I did parliamentary debate. And actually, my partner in college was Grant, who I started BPI with. Okay. But when you say national champion, is there like a specific competition you're in? Yeah, there's like three main national championships in high school. So I won like one of them. And then I did all right in the other two, like top 20 or something like that. I watched a film recently about a debating team. What was it called? I'll dig it up and I'll let you know. Okay. You probably know all about it. So, So in doing that, is it like... Is there a topic given and you're just given a side to argue or do you only you have argue, to prep you, both sides? You have to prep both sides. And so you flip a coin at the start of the round. Wow. Winner gets to pick either which side they want to argue or whether they want to speak first or second. Traditionally, you pick speaking second. It's like more of an advantage. Okay. But it depends on the format. So in like the type of debate I did in high school, um, you had like one topic every month and you spent like quite a bit of time sort of researching and preparing your arguments. The type of debate that I did in college you got the topic and your side assigned to you. And then you had like, I think it was like 10 minutes to prepare for like an hour long debate. Wow. Okay. And so is debating something like you're, you just naturally have a talent for, or can you train or is it a bit of both? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think you can train. I mean, some of my most like rewarding experiences with debate were really coaching. Um, so after high school, I got to college Um, did a couple tournaments like, you know, with, with Grant, but the main thing that I did on the debate front was, uh, like helping start, uh, debate programs in all of these like inner city schools in like Tuscaloosa. Um, and yeah, I mean like most people aren't getting the type of education that teaches them to, uh, construct an argument, to deconstruct an argument, to, uh, Yeah, to sort of like do that like critical thinking. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think it's one of the best things for like, I'm definitely going to hopefully my kids, uh, you know, when I have them, hopefully they do debate. Um, I, you know, I think it's, it's good for people and some people are naturally good, but, uh, it's, you know, I think anybody can get, can get good at it. Um, and the type of thinking that debate rewards, I think is like useful far beyond like, you know, just a high school competition or whatever. There is one slight issue I have with debating. And it's interesting you answered the question is that there is a, you know, a topic and you can prepare, you prepare for both sides. Right. In that sometimes in a debate structure is about who can win mm-hmm. rather than working collaboratively to find the best answer. Yeah. Uh, we had Nate Harmon and Steve Barber recently kind of debating to find, you know, discuss climate change. But really like, 
on that climate stuff, I, I kind of don't like the debates because the debates are about taking a position and arguing against the other person. Right. And I don't think that actually gets you to the truth. I think working more collaboratively to find the truth is what's more important. That's my issue with debating. I think that's reasonable. I mean, I think that, you know, the only way to arrive at a conclusion about a lot of tough questions is to make an argument yeah. and then have good faith debate and like subject that argument to criticism and like iteratively improve on it. So I think it's like both, right? If you want to arrive at like something closer to like directionally the truth, you know, debate has to be a part of that. Yeah. But you're right that the sort of like formal structure, it's a game, right? It's not about who's right. It's not about getting to the truth. And so when it's devoid of that, like, good faith kind of like, Oh, you know what? That's a good point. I'm wrong. Uh, you, you proved me wrong. Yeah. Like you can't really, there's not much room to do that in a formal debate. So it, it, yeah, it's not like, uh, it, yeah, it's not sufficient, but I think it's necessary to think well, uh, it is to sort of make an argument and, and let people attack it and try to defend it. Yeah, and I think that's one of those like major criticisms I have now on Twitter, why I think it's so destructive in that it's become this kind of mass uncoordinated debate. Yeah. Uh, often with some great presented ideas, some poorly presented ideas, and then sometimes ideas challenged by dunking or memeing, which again can be useful, but then can be not so useful. But I find there's little to no truth finding in there. It's, yeah. it's like a game. Yeah, I, it it always, I think everyone, not everyone, but a lot of people on Twitter are just kind of like, like waiting to be triggered, like waiting to be offended. They want to assume the worst. And I feel like that's the kind of the thing that I noticed is yeah. that everyone kind of seems to assume the worst in each other on Twitter. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I, I despise it. And I'm, I'm kind of been wrestling with like how I used to, so I don't, I, I used to tweet a decent bit and you may have noticed, I don't really tweet that much anymore. I kind of only tweet like work related things like a long thread on like why Bitcoin is like good for us national security or something like that. Mm. But, uh, I I've been on Twitter in general, like way less tweeting way less. But the thing I have to have sort of balance is like, that's where like my main audience is for BPI. So I have a lot of friends that I like don't, you know, see in person ever or that often. And Twitter is a great way to stay in touch with them and feel connected to them. So I don't know. You got to be keep promoting this BPI. So with the with the Bitcoin Policy Institute, what is it you're actually trying to do? What are the outcomes? I know you're trying to uh, affect policy. Yeah. Um. But like, what are the wins? What are the goals here? I mean, I think like there are sort of several baskets of goals. Um. I can kind of go through them in turn. So one is that um. Th I think this bull market in particular, uh, from the sort of regulatory side, was characterized by uh, a really sort of outsized presence uh, in DC by um, like crypto and like Web3 interests uh, because they're all centralized. And so, you know, you have a token or a project or a VC fund and, you know, it's like, oh, very reasonable. It's a cost of doing business, right? You like take some percentage of your capital and you hire a lobbying firm and you hire policy people and they go you know, when, when there's conversations happening about policy, it's like, oh, well, who do we invite? Oh, let's invite the policy guys from A16Z and from, you know, these various companies. So you had this dynamic where Bitcoin, despite being like the, you know, like half the market cap of all digital assets, didn't really have a seat at the table. 
And you have to give credit to uh, like Jerry and, and Niraj and Peter and that crew. Cause I think coin center has done, and they've been doing this for way longer than us for a long time and doing a great job at it. Um, but outside of them, like there wasn't really a, a, a Bitcoin seat at the table. So like one KPI is like, you know, uh, how often are we looped into these discussions? How often are we able to kind of sit at the table and, you know, uh, bring the perspective of people that are chiefly interested in, in Bitcoin? Like I wouldn't say I'm a, a Bitcoin like maximalist per se, but Bitcoin is really the only crypto that I I care that much about. And that like, you know, uh, uh, makes me passionate. Uh, and so one kind of KPI is like, are we getting a seat at the table? Because Bitcoin uh, by nature of being a decentralized technology and, and truly decentralized, doesn't have a CEO, doesn't have a de facto lobbying budget. Uh, and there's no one to call, right? <laughs> like, you know, you, you can call the CEO of Ripple if you want to have a congressional hearing about, about XRP. Who, you know, you can't call Satoshi to come testify in Congress. And so that's like one like, meta goal is like... Um, not speaking for for Bitcoin because we're just like one organization, but being an organization that's like there day in and day out doing the work that has sort of Bitcoin top of mind. Uh, another goal is sort of uh, promoting like more research on Bitcoin. So one of the interesting things that I noticed when I was recruiting uh, scholars for BPI was that there was a bit of trepidation among a lot of them. Um, they were worried about how their peers would see them, how it might affect their tenure chances. Uh, you know, they were worried about sort of the, uh, very much like the academia that like the Bitcoin community likes to criticize fairly, uh, thinking differently of them for dedicating time to researching, uh, Bitcoin. And so another goal is like, well, uh, if we have this sort of structure, uh, it gives, uh, people who are in academia, uh, something to point to, to their colleagues, to their advisors, whoever, and say, you know, I promise I'm not crazy. Like I'm working at this think tank that's working on this. And there's kind of a network effect of that, right? Like the more people like Troy and, and all of these people, uh, Margo, like the more people like this who are out and researching Bitcoin, uh, as academics, it makes it that much easier for the next, uh, sort of person to shift their scholarly focus, maybe away from something else and toward Bitcoin. Um, and then the other goal, uh, and like sort of the terminal goal, I think would be, uh, living in a world in which everyone in DC at least understands the argument for why Bitcoin is good. Like, I think it's a bit ambitious to say we're going to like orange pill everyone in the world. Like that's dumb, but, but, the but at get, least answer, understand, at least know why it's different than crypto, uh, like broadly. And, you know, it's like, you know, if you're a pro gun control person, you can at least you could at least sort of give the other side's argument, right? Yeah. Uh, that's like a world I want to live in where people don't look at you like you have two heads when you say, no, Bitcoin is like really good for, you know, the billions of people that live in countries with runaway inflation or authoritarian regimes. Uh, you know, instead of being, I mean, I like Bitcoin, but at least I know that is a reason people, people like it. This show is brought to you by Ledin. Now from savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency 
and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they will re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. And not only a Ledin sponsor, I am also a customer of theirs too. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. Next up, we have Fidelity Investments. Now, one of the most regular emails I receive is people asking how to break into the industry. And Fidelity Investments reach out to me as they are looking to recruit hundreds of digitally native associates to their team to help shape the future of money. Now, Fidelity Investments is a diversified financial services provider with more than $7.2 trillion in client assets under administration and over 1.3 million trades each day. And they have also been pioneers in the Bitcoin mining and asset management space. Now, they started in Bitcoin back in 2014 when they entered the mining space and have continued to grow their team and services ever since. And their in-house fintech incubator is where the teams come up with innovative solutions to bridge the worlds of traditional finance and decentralization. Now, you have the chance to join them and directly impact how they deliver financial services to their customers. And they provide the resources, training, and development to make you successful in this emergent industry. Now, if you want to learn more about this, then please head over to crypto.fidelitycareers.com. That is crypto.fidelitycareers.com. Next up, it is Ledger. Now, recent events have highlighted just how important self-custody is. And Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. And the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger have recently announced the launch of their Nano S Plus. The larger screen makes it easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions. And the Nano S Plus maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. Now, I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017, before I even started this podcast. And I absolutely love the S Plus. If you want to find out more and purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot l-e-d-g-e-r dot com also today we have bit casino established in 2013 bit casino was the first licensed bitcoin casino and they are trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide not only do they have cutting edge security but they also have fast withdrawals and vip experiences that money can't buy with over 2800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24 7 live chat support Bit Casino is the best Bitcoin casino that you can go to. Now, if you want to find out more about Bit Casino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O.io. And please remember to gamble responsibly. What is a win for you? And have you had any significant wins yet? Yeah. Um, I think going by those KPIs that I kind of mentioned the major win that I'm most proud of is like getting this thing off its feet and, you know, it existing. Um, like it's been a real struggle to raise money for this, uh, to like keep the lights on. So the fact that we're still here a year in big win, uh, but I think some of our bigger wins have come from like shifting the Overton window around Bitcoin in DC, like influencing other think tanks, uh, you know, like I, I, we have a sort of subscriber list uh, we send out like emails to and kind of seeing more and more uh, people subscribing to our email list with like .gov email addresses, like Senate staffers, uh, congressional staffers, 
you know, Troy got invited to brief the White House on Bitcoin mining, so which cool. was so cool. You know, Matt's national security paper, uh, he'll have to tell you about this because yeah. I don't know a ton of the details, but I know that got passed around through the CIA, um, which is pretty cool. Is that cool? Is that a good thing? I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's information, right? Which yearns to be free. So uh, yeah. I, and I think it's, uh, I'd rather them reading that than reading uh, like, you know, Stephen Deal or like David Gerard's opinion on Bitcoin. Yeah, well, fuck David Gerard. Yeah. So uh, no, yeah, I think that's great. Um, Cause I, I mean, look, I might get canceled for this, uh, but I don't think that the interests of the central intelligence agency are that disparate from uh, the outcomes that Bitcoin engenders. Like you can love Bitcoin and hate the CIA, but uh, I think Bitcoin like undermines communist states. <laughs> like I think Bitcoin spreads freedom and democracy. Uh, I think Bitcoin makes it easier for people in closed societies to vote with their feet and vote with their capital and uh, expatriate their wealth from like Orwellian regimes to the United States. I'm almost certain I got a visit from the CIA in El Salvador. Have I talked about that on the show? I don't know. You've, told, you've definitely told me, but I'm not sure you said it on the show. I had this weird experience, man. So, like, uh, when I went to interview President Bukele, yeah, there was uh, someone from you, no, a bunch of people from USAID outside the room. Uh, they had a meeting with Bukele, uh, and I think they were like, "Who's this? Who's this guy in a metallic shirt with tattoos?" <laughs> so this guy comes up to me and is like, uh, "Yeah, hi. Who are you? What are you doing here?" I was like, "Oh, I've got a meeting with uh, the president uh, about Bitcoin." He was like, "Oh, what do you do?" I was like, "Oh, I have a podcast. I'm going to be interviewing him in a few days." And he's like, yeah, we're really interested in this Bitcoin thing. Can we talk to you about it? And I was like, yeah, fine. So he gave me his boss's, he gave his boss my number. And uh, next day I get a call and said, uh, do you want to come down to the US embassy and talk to us about this? I was like, nope. Uh, but you can come to my hotel. This is where I'm staying. Anyway, these three dudes turn up and like the one guy was like, hi, I'm so-and-so. I work for USAID. Uh, the second one was like, hi, I'm so-and-so, I work for the State Department. And then this third guy who basically, he kind of looked like, uh, you know when you see those guys running alongside the president's motorcade? <laughs> yeah, 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 Like full chisel jaw, like... Secret Service. Chris suit, and he was like, hi, I'm so-and-so, I work for the government. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> anyway, so like the first guy would be like, how does mining work? And then the second guy was like, uh, why is there 21 million? And then that, thing, that guy would be like, if you were a gang in Honduras, how would you use Bitcoin to... Uh, facilitate money laundering. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like this really weird experience. And I was, I was like, why Why would he just say I work for the government? Like, why wouldn't he tell me which department? It might not have been anything. Yeah. But, well, and, and, and it's, you know, these things are always like double-edged swords, right? Like, uh, one of the sort of things I like to talk about when I'm in meetings uh, with like staffers about Bitcoin is that you can make all the same arguments against Bitcoin uh, about, uh, against like Tor, right? But the Tor was born out of the the U.S. Naval Research Lab, was uh, funded and open sourced by U.S. intelligence agencies, and to this day, I believe, receives like upwards of 80% of its funding every year from the U.S. federal government. And so in the same way that Tor, like, is used for both licit and illicit activities, in the same way that Tor both enables uh, malign actors, but also, uh, like, helps people break firewalls and censorship, it's sort of the same same thing with bitcoin yeah and so if you're like a think tank uh how do you differ from lobbyists or are you essentially a lobbyist definitely not lobbyists so uh there's a kind of a, a pretty rigid definition of lobbying but essentially it is uh like receiving money to uh advocate uh sort of 
for a particular legislative outcome, like a yes or no vote on a piece of like extant legislation. So going to DC and saying, Hey, I'd like to take 30 minutes and talk to you about why I think Bitcoin is good for America or why I think Bitcoin is good for uh, energy infrastructure or why I think it's good for combating China. That's not lobbying. That's just like education. Lobbying, lobbying, lobbying lobbying version would be, uh, so that's like what Coin Center does. Like they're a five hundred one c four. I don't know if they're like registered lobbyists, but their nonprofit status allows them to like lobby. Uh, and so lobbying would be, hi, there's this piece of legislation that's being voted on soon, uh, and section two, uh, whatever line, whatever is written in this such a way that it creates like this outcome. You know, we want you to either vote no on this bill because of this reason, or we want this like wording to be changed to reflect this concern. So if you're kind of like in the weeds, like nitty gritty, you know, sort of trying to rally votes for or against something, trying to amend legislation that's like extant and being debated, that's when you're moving into like lobbying territory. Now the uh, IRS allows us to do a limited amount of lobbying. Uh, so a C3 can, it, it just sort of varies and it's like a scalar probably depends on your, your sort of budget or whatever. But I, I, I think it's like up to 20 or 25% of our activities can be lobbying, but we sort of expect more scrutiny because we're a Bitcoin nonprofit. So we do very, very limited, uh, like lobbying. Like if there was another infrastructure bill type deal, we would probably like use all of the sort of lobbying points that we've banked up to work on that. But for the most part, 90, 99% of what we do is, is just like advocacy and an education. And that education, what you're doing, the, the information you're putting in front of people, they're also seeing information come in from the lights of Greenpeace. Sure. Yeah. Ripple. Yeah. Defreeze. Yeah. Is this essentially like, I guess like a debate, but without structure? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's certainly one way of looking at it. Absolutely. I mean, with way more sort of complexity, uh, like you said, that lack of structure. But yeah, I mean, uh, the, it's sort of a battleground of like ideas um, because everyone comes into a meeting with whatever information they've read or heard. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, a lot of times it's like you start a meeting and you know, you're trying to ultimately like, in my role at least, in our role, you're trying to be useful, right? You're not trying to just like shove pro-Bitcoin propaganda down people's throats. Uh It's like, hi, like we're a group of academics. We know a decent bit about these topics. Do you have any questions for us? What is your office sort of thinking about these things? Like any questions about Bitcoin we can answer for you. And so that's usually how we get into sort of like some of the uh, energy debates or I heard Bitcoin uses as much energy as uh, a small country. Oh, okay. Well, did you know that, you know, Bitcoin only has, you know, about two times the emissions of like video games in America or that it only has about four and a half times the emissions of YouTube, like alone. Oh, well, that's really different. You know, well, I thought it was horrible. It's like, well, yeah, actually, some of this research is pretty bad, right? It doesn't account for the difficulty adjustment. What's that? Oh, let me explain. It doesn't account for the having. What's that? Ah, oh, let me explain. You know, uh, so yeah, I mean, you kind of encounter the anti-Bitcoin research in your day-to-day doing something like this. Uh, and yeah, I mean, uh, uh, you kind of have to respectfully but forcefully uh, uh, push back on on you know junk science. And the people you're in the end trying to influence is the people who make the decisions who who vote. It's the senators and the members of Congress. But, 
but you're not really speaking to them directly. It's almost always staff. Yeah. Yeah. So how does that work internally? A staff is then uh, you're collecting the information themselves, agreeing what they think, and then uh, then interpreting it for the senators. Well, yeah, because I mean, when you think about it, like if you're a senator or congressman in America, uh, technically you're responsible for knowing quite a bit about the world. Uh, and so there's no way a single person can kind of do that. And so every office has uh, kind of an army of staffers, um, usually people that are like my age, like, you know, early 20s, um, usually in the sort of 20, 23 to 30 range. Uh, and they do like all the legwork, really. And so, yeah, like, uh, uh, but even even those guys and girls are stretched thin. Um, so, you know, you meet a staffer who's like, yeah, my, I work for Senator so-and-so and, -so and uh, I'm responsible for you know, agriculture, uh, transportation and, uh, fintech or whatever. And so it's like, they'll have, it, you know, it's not like each office is going to have like a crypto person. Although, you know, I think the last year digital asset regulation was sort of one of the flashy like issues du jour in, in DC. And so, um, uh, I think I noticed a lot of offices would sort of bring someone into a meeting and say, yeah, this is our crypto person right here. Um, but usually it's just some, you know, smart, a uh, young person who has spent like six months like reading about it and they are like the de facto crypto expert for like that particular uh, office. But obviously it's different like Lummis and, you know, Davidson, like they're the people that have kind of, and, you know, Elizabeth Warren, Brad Sherman, like mm. on the other side, like there are, you know, members who have made crypto regulation one way or the other, uh, a, a more sort of a larger part of their, their sort of policy work well even with ted cruz my interview with him uh, whatever you think of him his depth of knowledge on how bitcoin works was, was impressive yeah ted cruz is a really smart guy i mean again sort of not to get like political or whatever but you know, absent no commentary on sort of his politics uh i've spoken with a lot of politicians uh in in my life and ted cruz was sort of like a, in a league of his own in terms of the depth of analysis that, you know, like I met him and it's like, boom, like he's really bright guy. Mm. Um, he was also a, a really successful debater, uh, in college actually at Harvard. Huh. I never knew that. Okay. So have you been successful, uh, or are we generally being successful in getting that kind of like separation between Bitcoin and crypto? Is that being affected? You know, I, it's hard to measure success. Um, I think, I think there's been more of that narrative in the last year in DC than ever because of us. Cause that's our principal narrative, right? Is that Bitcoin is special. Um, you know, we're not trying to like tear down crypto. We're not trying to say everything is a scam that isn't Bitcoin. Uh, you know, sort of from a first principles perspective, like we're really in favor of people being able to experiment with nascent technology and build decentralized financial architecture. Like that's awesome uh, in, in general, right. From a very principled perspective, uh, you know, instead of saying, you know, it's Bitcoin, not shitcoins or whatever, we're saying, look, uh, Bitcoin is different enough in sort of like form and function uh, in its origin, all of these things uh, that it warrants sort of, separate consideration from Shiba Inu or whatever, or, 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 you know, FTX. Cause you have to understand like a lot of these people don't even understand the difference between, you know, a centralized firm like FTX, like an exchange, uh, from, uh, from a layer one from like Bitcoin. And so, yeah, trying to kind of 
dis sort of break the like mold of this is all in this one bucket of crypto to like, Hey, there's a lot of different things happening here and we think Bitcoin is special. So that's actually one of the things I'm really excited about for this year with BPI. We're putting on a one day conference in DC called what makes Bitcoin special. Uh, so it's like invite only. It's mostly going to be staffers and members of government, but Bitcoin magazine is going to be like live streaming all the panels. Wow. So, uh, you know, anybody can tune in and watch it, but it's going to be like all of the BPI uh, fellows, some people at, you know, uh, other think tanks uh, and and groups in DC, just spending a day talking about uh, Bitcoin, uh, like unpacking FTX, uh, unpacking, you know, DCG and the grayscale stuff and principally explaining what makes Bitcoin special. <laughs> so I'm really excited for that. And that's kind of the the thesis, right? Is that you can't just convince someone overnight, but repetition goes, does wonders. So, uh, a lot of our job is just kind of beating that drum until we're blue in the face. Um, and hopefully sort of shifting the Overton window and the discourse and, you know, downstream of that, the policy, uh, toward a, a better outcome. How much has FTX made all our lives more difficult? Oh, um, I mean, we we didn't, mean, we didn't see you at uh, Pacific Bitcoin because you were like down in DC yeah. fighting fires. Well, we, we yeah we had more, I think more sort of legislative outreach to us in that two week period than we did cumulatively in the year that we've been running. So you know the short answer is that FTX was horrible for the sort of crypto's perception in in DC. Um, because so much of the education was like funded by Sam or done by Sam uh, and, and, you know, the FTX people. Uh, and I think politicians really gravitated toward him because he was like from their world, right? You know, MIT kid, you know, dad, parents are professors. Like he, again, sort of checked these like epistemic heuristics of like, oh, this isn't just some shadowy super coder. This is a smart kid from MIT. Like, who's built a successful business around this. Like I will listen to him and, you know, hear what he has to say. So, I mean, the, I think immediate reaction was like, these crypto people are all liars. They're all grifters. Um, they've fed us nonsense and, and BS information. Uh, and you know, I mean, uh, it really hurt a lot of people's reputations. Like all these politicians that got money from Sam were getting like blasted online, blasted in the press. Uh, so huge, like sort of destruction of trust. Um, a renewed skepticism of, you know, like now you're even hearing people say, um, like one of the new kind of like anti-crypto, uh, like the sort of policy beliefs is that we actually shouldn't regulate it at all because regulation, uh, legitimizes it. And crypto is so inherently bad and wrong that, um, we shouldn't regulate it at all. Which, like, as I think a lot of Bitcoiners hear that, and they probably think, oh, gee, anything but that, <laughs> you know? Well, hold on, isn't that a good thing if they don't regulate it? No, that's what I'm saying. Like, it's like sarcastically yeah, being like, oh, you know, anything but that, please, please. Like, because, I mean, these are like anti-crypto people who are like, no, these guys want to be regulated. And, you know, what we should do is, you know, not regulate them because the regulation gives them legitimacy. The legitimacy gives them you know, capital from institutions and retail investors. So we should just like ignore it altogether. So it's like interesting because in some, there's like a subset of the anti-crypto crowd that has gone so far full circle that, you know, they have the same views as like Bitcoin maximalists on policy. <laughs> Is there any regulation that could have stopped FTX actually happening? Uh, Is it like banking regulation? Like 
transparency reports? Or- like, I don't know. I mean, there's probably stuff that, yeah, yeah, like, yes and no. There are, there's regulation that could have probably caught them sooner, could have limited like Americans, like exposure to it, et cetera. But like, you know, we can't regulate an offshore, like, you know, he was doing all this stuff offshore. Mm. Um, so I mean like, ex, you know, regulating exchanges like banks, some of these other things could have made it harder for them to do shady things and also conduct business in America. But with crypto, it's so tough, right? Cause you can just use a VPN and pretend like you're in Argentina and access the platform that way or whatever. So I think there might be things that could have mitigated it, but I don't think there's like a silver bullet policy that like, Oh, if only we'd had, yeah, you know, no, like Mm. the short answer is no. Like I don't think there's a single policy that would have prevented. What do you say to those people who are like, uh, because we do have it within the Bitcoin crowd, there'll be certain people who say, uh, stop wasting your time, stop, you know, stop buttering up to politicians, like just focus on Bitcoin, just keep building out Bitcoin to win anyway. Like, what do you say to that? Oh, a lot to unpack there. Um, so I guess like the most important thing is that I, I'm not like religious in my confidence on Bitcoin and Bitcoin. Um, I don't think anything in life is like guaranteed. So, you know, I mean, look, people can do whatever they want. <laughs> like, that's the nice thing about Bitcoin is like, there's no corporate structure. There's, you don't need anyone's permission to start a Bitcoin think tank. So, you know, my, generally my response, if someone says, you know, you're wasting your time is like, you know, all right, well then don't do what I'm doing and go do something else. <laughs> like, you know, cool. Like we all kind of pick boulders to push up hills and this is the boulder that I've chosen. I like it. It's a nice boulder, but you don't have to like it. You can think it's a dumb boulder and you can think that it's a waste of time and that's great. You know, go do something else. I'm not a very like technically adroit person. Like I don't code, um, at all or very well. Uh, I'm not going to be contributing to core. Uh, I'm not going to be, uh, uh, building software that improves, uh, you know, the functionality and, and, you know, usefulness of Bitcoin. Uh, but I think I'm decent at like what I'm doing. Uh, and you know, I believe there's like a, a net good in it. Our donors believe that as well. Uh, and so, I mean, yeah, first I would sort of caution against like believing that anything is, is just sort of path dependent. I think that mindset just breeds complacency. It rubs people the wrong way. It comes off as religious. Uh, not there's anything wrong with being religious, but, uh, yeah, I don't think that's a generally healthy mindset to have. Like, you know, I you talk to like successful entrepreneurs or successful people in general, I, I don't think many of them would sort of sit there and say, oh yeah, like I actually thought the moment that I founded this company that it was going to make me a billionaire. Like you just, you just don't do very well if you're sort of going into it believing I don't have to do anything. It's all going to work out. Um, the sort of more practical thing that I would say is like, uh, a lot of people conflate, and I think we've talked about this before, but a lot of people sort of conflate themselves with the Bitcoin protocol, which is a really bizarre thing. They're like, you know, Bitcoin uh, uh, can't be stopped. You know, TikTok next block. Uh, you know, there's nothing you can do to to keep the network from producing, you know, new blocks. Okay, yeah, like Bitcoin sounds pretty indestructible. Are you indestructible? <laughs> like as a person, as a Bitcoiner? Um because the government can make life for Bitcoiners really hard, even if it can't stop the protocol from functioning. So there's some kind of uh, uh, personal motivation of like, I like America. I want to live in America. I think it's a great place. There's no other country I'd rather be in. And I really like Bitcoin. 
So I don't want the place that I live to be hostile to Bitcoin. And I think educating people about why Bitcoin is useful uh, to the interests of America and why it aligns with American values is like good. Um, do I think I'm going to think BPI is going to save Bitcoin? No. Do I, do I think like, I don't have any sort of grandiose vision? It's just like, look, these conversations are happening, right? So you can bury your head in the sand and say, well, I don't want to talk to politicians. Great. Don't. But you doesn't stop the conversations from happening. doesn't stop the regulation from happening. So really, I see the choice is like, do you want a seat at the table or do you not? I'd prefer to have a seat at the table. What what tables are they, though? <laughs> the smoke-filled the rooms. Smoke filled no, I mean, but yeah, like uh, uh, the, the conversations that are had about like policy, right? It's, it's not like there's some, I mean, the government isn't some real thing. It's just a bunch of people. And so it's like, Oh yeah, we got to do crypto policy. Well, who do we know that's an expert in crypto? Oh yeah, these guys at Cato or these guys at Brookings or these guys at BPI. Let's call them and see what they think. And so it's kind of about like putting yourself in these like social webs where people see you as a source of truth or at least a, a valuable perspective to get. And do you think there are any existential risks to Bitcoin through regulation in the US? Because I've always felt like if if America outlawed it, it kind of feels like it could destroy like if there was regulation that said you cannot own or use bitcoin as an american citizen like that's a crime i kind of feel like america like the, the europe will certainly then bend the knee and like and then what is it like well it's i mean it might still carry on used in like south american places and like other places but i, I feel like that could be quite destructive yeah it's a complicated question i mean i an existential is like a a big threshold so i mean the price would go down a lot, yeah, I mean. right? And so I think like the best argument to make for, uh, you know, there being an existential regulatory threat to Bitcoin would be, uh, you know, kind of like akin to security budget FUD, yeah. right? Like, you know, look, uh, they can't stop the Bitcoin network. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think if the US government were to outright ban it, which I, I don't think is going to happen, I think we're way too far gone for that. Um, but if that were to happen, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the price would nuke. Which nukes the security budget. Right. And so there is an argument to be made that there's an there's a risk. And that's the thing about existential risks, right? Is when you're, you know, when you're talking about an existential risk, the impact is infinite, right? Like if your end is a better place to be a Bitcoiner, like there's no worse fate than, you know, Bitcoin getting banned or, or Bitcoin not having a sufficient security budget. Uh, and so because the threat is so large, even you know, any non-zero probability uh, warrants taking that pretty seriously. So I can kind of both believe that there is a low probability of a very horrible thing happening and believe that it's extremely unlikely that that bad thing actually happens. And, and honestly, Bitcoin is like, I think the kind of mainstream view in DC is that it's just not the scariest thing in the world. Like, one of the sort of like memes about Bitcoin that I think has permeated uh, the halls of, of government in America is that it's pretty traceable. Obviously, like, you know, I don't think, uh, you know, anyone in DC is like thinking about the implications of like SegWit for like privacy in the future or like whatever. Um, but in general, people are like, ah, yeah, we can sort of trace this, you know, whatever, it's fine. Mm, the bigger concerns are consumer protection stuff. So like FTX, um, how do we regulate these exchanges and these like centralized entities that Americans are parking their money with? Stable coins have been a much bigger sort of topic of conversation, DeFi. So Bitcoin kind of is in a 
there are bigger targets, I guess, and bigger perceived risks um, by a lot of people in government than Bitcoin. But, you know, then you get the sort of like out of left field stuff like Elizabeth Warren's recent, you know, uh, bill that would effectively ban self-custody, that would effectively, I mean, would sort of neuter all of the things that are cool about this tech. Yeah, but her shit's not really going anywhere, is it? No, but it's troubling that it was bipartisan, right? It's troubling that she had a Republican, you know, sort of co-sponsor that bill with Which her. Which Republican was it? Uh, Marshall, uh, Senator Marshall. It's surprising to find a Republican on that side of things, but... Yeah, and I think that was, like, alarming. But, yeah, I mean, most bills never make it anywhere. But it's kind of about, like, uh, sort of setting the goalpost. And, again, like, this concept I refer to a lot of, like, shifting the Overton window. It's, like, right now it's a split uh, split legislature. And so, you know, the probability of really any meaningful policy coming out is low. Um, but this stuff doesn't just go away. And so it's, like, in a couple of years, maybe uh, the tides have shifted. Maybe people are more anti-Bitcoin. Maybe a certain political party has a greater hold on power. And they're like, ah, yeah, remember that bill Elizabeth Warren had? Well, she had some good ideas. Let's revive some of that. Um, And so that's like an area where we sort of push back, even though the bill doesn't have a low chance, or even though the bill doesn't have a chance really at all of going anywhere. Like, it is so damaging to normalize the policy belief that we should, you know, that self-custody should be outlawed. It's like, how do you expect to protect people from something like FTX if you are banning the thing that keeps people from parking their money with shady people. And so that's like the argument that we make in Washington. It's like, if you care about consumer protection, then you need to make sure it's a right for every American to self custody that no one, you know, uh, no one should be forced to, everyone should have the right to hold their own private keys. Um, so sometimes we sort of like adopt the language of Washington of like, well, consumer protection. Awesome. You care about that. So do we, Self-custody is like the best form of consumer protection possible. Now, the Luke stuff, I mean, uh, obviously it has its own risks, but like you could not have avoided FTX. This show is brought to you by Wasabi, who I will now be using to make sure I keep my Bitcoin private. With the release of Wasabi 2.0, privacy is now effortless as a wallet has introduced privacy by default. Now, rather than having to choose to coin join, this can be done automatically. So you just have to receive your Bitcoin wait for the coin join, and then you can spend freely. All the magic happens automatically in the background, which is a massive UX improvement, which you know, that's always something I care about. Now, you do get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi, so you don't leak your IP address. There is also no more minimum denomination, so you can coin join any amount, and there is no change, so any amount you receive from a coin join is private. Now, privacy is something I am definitely taking more seriously, and with the recently released Wasabi 2.0, this becomes so much easier. Now, if you do want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. Next up, we have Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but whilst we're at the bottom of a bear market, I'm only buying. We're hodlers, right? We hodl through this. Now, I have been using the Gemini app for buying the dips all through this, and I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini have invested in building leading industry security since day one. Gemini are also running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. 
All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade over $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD. That is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. Also today, we have BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online business banking services for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am now a customer of BCB too. Now, they heard about the difficulty I had with finding a payment services provider that understands Bitcoin, and they reached out to me. Now, BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, and they are expanding globally. They also have this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have had trouble with this too. So if you're looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you might want to become a BCB customer too. Now if you want to find out more, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. I'm not sure what's going on with that. Yeah, neither thing. neither am I. Everything sounds a bit weird. It all seems off, but I I can't. I have no thoughts. I can't comment. Yeah. I'm just kind of waiting for more information. The only thing about it is I didn't like the kind of cheerleading against the or like the. I don't know, man. Like Luke has done some amazing work for Bitcoin. Like he managed to figure out Segwick as a soft fork. Like he's a clever motherfucker. Yeah, and like dunking on him, I just I didn't like it. Yeah, I, I guess I could comment on. I mean, uh, on the sort of commentary about like Luke having a lot of Bitcoin. Um, Do you want to just explain what happened for people that might not know? Yeah, that's fair. So yeah, Luke Dash Jr., uh, really prolific core hey, dev. It's not Luke Dash Jr. No. Oh. It's Luke Dasher. Oh, Luke Dasher. Yeah, yeah. everyone thinks it's Luke Dash Jr. It's Luke ah, Dasher. Well, I see. I don't fucking know. Yeah. But uh, yeah, basically a prolific uh, Bitcoin developer, you know, put out this really bizarre thread that was just like, you know, I've lost all my, or I've lost... What, he initially had some weird wording. Is like yeah. up to many, as much as many, or up to as, up to many of my Bitcoin. Basically, lost city, lost a bunch of Bitcoin to a two hundred Bitcoin. Yeah, and and you know, one of the immediate reactions was like, wait, this guy has been incessantly tweeting. I don't say incessantly, but has has often been tweeting about uh, wanting donations, and you know, has sort of insinuated, not stated, but through the language and like subtext of his tweets has kind of made it seem like he's struggling financially. And so I think a lot of people were like, wait, why did I give this guy money? He's got 200 Bitcoin. And I think that's unfair, right? Because the guy has eight kids. Like, he's doing work for free. And so I was a little... I kind of rolled my eyes at the people that were, like, grabbing pitchforks. But, I mean, there's something to that, right? It's like, if you're asking people for donations, it's important to be, like, transparent about where you are. Um, Is it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but, but like, why, why, why should somebody work for free if their net wealth is high? No, they sh- they shouldn't. People should be compensated for their their labor. But, but I and I, I like one of the weird things I get lots of emails right to the show. One thing is people tell me how much Bitcoin they have. They're like, "Hey, Pete, so I've been in Bitcoin for like two years, and I'm up to like 0.73 Bitcoin, or I've got like 3.8 Bitcoin." And my immediate reply is always is. Don't tell anyone. Yeah, don't tell anybody how much Bitcoin, Bitcoin you get. So how can he be transparent? Yeah, he would have to tell people what Bitcoin he's got. Yeah, and I don't have like a strong opinion here. Like I think there's a legitimate point to be made that some of his tweets suggested a level of financial insecurity that maybe wasn't there. However, like 
Well, what if he doesn't yeah, want to spend his Bitcoin? Yeah. Like so I, I donate to his Patreon. Yeah. Like 50 bucks a month. I'm more than happy to do it. His work's been incredible. What if it's like his Bitcoin is just left forever for like whatever legacy he wants? Yeah. And he collects fiat Patreon to, to pay for his 48 yeah. kids. I mean, the short answer is I think it's completely reasonable to ask people for donations yeah. uh, if you're doing work. That's like literally what I do. Yeah. Right. And so yeah, what's your I would wealth. <laughs> you go to Bitcoin when you're 13. Yeah. So it, I mean, it would be like, yeah, I would be kind of upset if people were like, oh, well, you got into Bitcoin in middle school. So like, why are you asking for it? Because running a nonprofit is really expensive. I yeah. can't afford to bankroll. <laughs> like I'm not having eight kids is fucking expensive. Eight kids, man. Dude, that's crazy. I've got two and it kills me. Yeah. I have none, so that's, I don't have, you know, but I'm sure one day, like, I'll be able to relate to you on that. Dude, don't, man, honestly, one day you will. Um, I don't even know where we're going with that, but, like, anyway, like, I just didn't like the whole dunking on him. It's like, fuck off. And then I didn't like how it was used to say, look, if if he can't do it, no, it's like, I yeah, didn't That even was un- even more annoying. Well, so I didn't even understand his setup, and he obviously has a setup, like, only somebody like him who's, like, uh, like a super brainiac computer nerd can set up, like... And there are other people saying, if he can't do it, nobody else can do it. Like Trezor, Ledger, Coldcard, they're all pretty easy. Like the only time I've seen people fuck that up is they didn't back up their private key or they got done in a phishing, uh, like there was like a phishing exercise. Right. But like that's the only time they fuck that up. It's not that hard. People now, they're making out like if he can't do it, nobody can do it. It's not that hard. Right. Well, I think what it really kind of strikes at though is people's, like society's expectations for like how money should function. You know, I think if you were totally green to to Bitcoin and crypto, you know, one of your first like I don't I don't think your immediate thought would be self custody. Be like, wait, why can't you just like you know roll it back, <laughs> right? And so, uh, yeah, that's a huge part of like my worldview is that um, competition in money is good, that competition in monetary policy is good, um, and the point of competition is that you have like discrete products with just discrete trade-offs uh, in different sort of setups. And so, uh, okay. Like you have some money that is not censorship resistant. Um, but you can call your bank if you get scammed and get your money back. Then you've also got money that no one can stop you from transacting with. But if you get your, your Bitcoin stolen kind of SOL. Uh, so I, you know, I think it, it it's, important from the perspective of like, Hey, there are trade-offs to everything. And like, we get all these great things with Bitcoin. You know, we also lose certain things with Bitcoin and ultimately it's just kind of a personal judgment of like, well, which of these things do I care more about? And then how do I allocate my capital or my wealth, you know, uh, in, in sort of in turn. So yeah, I I also thought that the sort of dunking on self-custody was silly, uh, in response to that, that definitely frustrated me. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it sort of does show one of the trade-offs that Bitcoin makes, which is that there's, you know, there's no no one you can appeal to 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 get it back. Yeah, I mean, there was like that defeatist uh, final tweet from in that thread where he was like, "Yeah, I guess it's gone." Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, look, it sucks for him. It's awful. Like, and yeah, that that's also why I was like, I uh, it just it kind of made my stomach turn to read some of those comments because it's like holy crap, like this guy just lost like three and a half million dollars or something. Yeah. And, and like, geez, like that's just, that's if you have any shred of empathy, it's like, like that almost brings me to like, not, I mean, not, I'm not going to say I cried over it. I don't know the guy, but it's like, damn, that is brutal. Like yeah. that sucks. Um, so yeah, I, I, you know, look, I think a lot of people probably just saw that 
he had more Bitcoin than they'll ever dream of having and wanted to dunk on him because they were like envious. Yeah, he should come out and go like, "Ah, look, it's what it is. I got another 10,000 here. (laughs) Go fuck yourself. He wouldn't do that. Yeah. Yeah. All right, man. Anyway, enough of the Luke stuff. Yeah. So like, so what are the, um, actually, before I ask you that, like, what is the BPI core thesis? Like, if you're in Washington and you were sat down with a new staffer yeah. and it was like a completely open conversation, which, what's your core thesis of Bitcoin if you had like a minute to explain? What do you say to them? In much the same way that the internet changed the world uh, and changed how we interact with information, Bitcoin has changed how humanity interacts with value and money. And in the same way that Bitcoin or that the internet enabled a whole host of new businesses and new opportunities. It also came with uh, its own set of like risks and downsides, right? We got Amazon. We also got new forms of scams. We got people living in, in uh, disconnected remote parts of the developing world who could like sell their baskets on Alibaba or like eBay. And we got uh, uh, criminal groups that could use it to like undermine infrastructure in countries. Uh, Bitcoin is like very similar to that. Uh, our belief is that in the same way that the open flow of information enabled by the internet made the world a better place, the open flow of value enabled by Bitcoin will do the same thing. So that's kind of like our like top shelf framing is like, you know, it's kind of very in the style of like early, like Andreas videos, honestly. And again, like a lot of what we do is not groundbreaking or like new thought. It's not that original. Um, I think it's true. Uh, So I think relating it to things that people understand, like the internet, explaining that there are benefits and risks, but that the sort of directional trend of freeing up uh, uh, people to transact with each other in the same way that the internet freed them up to communicate with each other will like make the world a, a, a better place. Now, that's just an argument. People can make arguments against it. I don't expect that to just immediately convince anyone, but that's kind of the way that I like to prime people to think about Bitcoin is like, there are discrete risks. There are discrete opportunities. Uh, nothing's like black and white, but this is revolutionary. It's not going anywhere. It's altering the fabric of society. And let me tell you why I think that, you know, when we weigh the benefits and we weigh the risks, it's a net positive for the world. And do you attach it to like traditional American values? Yeah, I, I mean, I sort of try to, but I, I'd say, yeah, there's the sort of... It's a leading question, by the way. Yeah, well, there's like the... There is the argument about like, oh, it aligns with, you know, freedom of choice and all of this stuff. But it also, I think it just more kind of clearly also aligns with like U.S. strategic interests, right? Like our adversaries like China are building uh, competing monetary stacks. They're building walled gardens and they're actively trying to onboard companies and uh, people across the world to their sort of closed walled garden, like dystopian payment architecture. Uh Enter Bitcoin, which uh, presents an effective bulwark to that, right? Like we'd much prefer uh, people living in uh, uh, low and middle income countries to use Bitcoin to connect to global finance than uh, a digital yuan. So, you know, I like to sort of relate uh, Bitcoin to to sort of like broad bipartisan like strategic interests. So the reason I say it's a leading question is as somebody who's been traveling to America for nearly 20 years now, coming back and forth, absolutely loving it, fascinated by the country, the people, the history. I do kind of feel like over the last few years, kind of traditional American values relating to freedom 
and privacy have been under attack. I think the Constitution feels like it's been under attack more than ever. It's almost like, the, like correct me if I'm wrong here, but the Fourth Amendment relates to uh, unchecked surveillance. Unreasonable search um, and seizure. So, yeah. And like due process. It, it almost feels like the Fourth Amendment just doesn't fucking matter anymore. Like no one gives a shit about it. Like I know people do and lawyers do and people, but like the US government is constantly breaking that. And what my worry is, is like there are parts of America or parts of uh, Washington, which is kind of distancing itself from a traditional American values. I, I'm, I wouldn't consider, like if I lived here, I wouldn't, wouldn't consider myself a Republican or a Democrat. Mm-hmm. I think if I, anything, I'd be center right. I just feel like there's been this like drag away from it. It was like Danny was talking about the meme earlier. It's like the new $1.7 trillion infrastructure bill or whatever right. it was. You know, that, like, nobody knows where that's going, but tell me where you're spending $600. Like, we want to know every payment you're doing everywhere all the fucking time. Yeah. Like, the lack of privacy, the, the trajectory towards CBDCs. It's like, right. Well, there is no constitutional right to privacy. Oh, you know, there isn't. Fun fact, the word privacy does not appear in the U.S. Constitution I once. I did not know that. Yeah, a little trivia for you. Huh. Um, and I, I, I mean, I think sort of that's probably because the founding fathers, like, I mean, I don't know, it's counterfactual, but I assume it's because they thought the Fourth Amendment would cover, cover that. I mean, how do you define? Uh, oh, another fun fact: the United States Postal Inspection Service predates the Constitution. So we've been reading people's mail since before we even had a constitution, <laughs> which is which is interesting. So what what how do you define what unreasonable search and seizure is then? I mean, you know, uh, like sort of the due process, right? Like, so in America, the standard is like you know a uh, uh, reasonable suspicion uh, or probable cause. Like we have these different sort of thresholds of evidence, and we apply them you know, to different contexts. So $600 every payment isn't a probable cause. It's just mass surveillance. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think you're right that America has deviated post 9-11 from like a lot of these sort of core uh, principles. But, you know, ultimately it's like, people are making, uh, you know, trade-offs of of values, um, which is like a common problem, right? You have two things that you believe represent normative goods, and uh, there's some tension like between them. Now, this is sort of way more philosophical, but I'm I'm kind of like a Dorconian on this. Like I sort of believe there's like a unity of value, but uh, that's sort of for another day. Um, yeah, in general, I think people are like, hey, you know, we have to balance freedom and security. We have to balance, uh, you know, uh, uh, liberty and equality. Um, so yeah, like. Uh, I think we've made some really unfortunate uh, choices there. And I think the sort of rapidity with which technology is like dominating our lives and it's all sort of changing like the fundamental nature of like the world in which the constitution was like written, right? Like the founding fathers could not have anticipated uh, mass communication. They could not have anticipated the amount of information that, you know, you'd be able to glean from, uh, people's purchase history, from people's transaction history, from people's search history, their phone calls. And so we're, I think, sort of approaching a point, and maybe we've already, I think we've already reached it, but... Need some more amendments. Well, may, yeah, we, we, I think we are certainly at a point where we have to be very deliberate about which sort of principles of liberal democracy we choose to bring with us into the digital age and which we choose to leave behind because it is sort of, I think inarguable that technology is rapidly just changing 
the realm of what's possible with surveillance, with control. Uh, and so the worst thing that you can do is kind of just ignore it and say like, oh, you know, it's all going to be fine. Like we've got the constitution. It is what it is. Like, no, I think we are at a real danger of losing like fundamental rights, uh, fundamental sort of notions about being free in a liberal democracy uh, if we're not careful. And so that's like also a way that I like to talk about uh, Bitcoin, right? I think it like really does align well with American values, with liberal democratic values. Um, for example, like if you're using Bitcoin, uh, no one can stop you from making a transaction, but you are going to be responsible for the consequences of that transaction. That aligns really nicely with the fundamental liberal principle of, you know, you can't be treated like a criminal by the government until they've proven that you've done something wrong. Uh, so yeah, like in, in some sense, it's kind of like this cypherpunk notion of, well, if our rights aren't going to be respected by law, we can build technology that digitally like enshrines these rights. The path to updating or changing the constitution, I can't even I can't even foresee the complexities and debates and discussions that would lead to that even happening. I mean, I just don't understand US history or US politics enough. Arduous process and yeah. it hasn't happened for a while. Yeah, when was the last time do you even know? Oh, I should. Um It doesn't matter. Daniel look it up. Yeah, when, what was the last constitutional amendment? It might be the quick one. Did you hear? 1992, the 27th Amendment was Were changed. you born? You probably weren't born, were you? I was born in 99. Fuck's sake. <laughs> At least you were born last century. Yeah. yeah. Big amendment. flex. Yeah. God, I was born in the 70s, dude. It's nuts. It's fucking 70s. Yeah. Uh, just interestingly, just like side point, I just forgot that I uh, read the other day that uh, Microsoft are uh, integrating chat uh, GBT with their search. Hmm. And... I heard that Google, like they had some kind of thing where they issued like a red warning. I think it's like an internal warning that this is like an existential threat to their business. Oh, wow. Yeah, because like if you can if you can get AI to give you a better answer, than, I mean, Google like fucking sucks now. It's like five ads, ads down the side. Like it doesn't do what it did in the early days where like it just gave you the best result. Yeah. It's just like ads and bullshit. Like if someone can come out with a search engine that genuinely finds you the best result, People will move quickly. I mean, you you probably won't remember. The, hold on, the internet predates you, doesn't it? Well, yeah, uh, yeah, of course. yeah totally. Like, I was like fourteen uh, when I was like your age. There was a search engine called Alta Vista. That was the one that everyone used. So first it was Yahoo, but that was more like an index. Then everyone started using Alta Vista, and Alta Vista was great. And then Google came along with their page rank system, just like destroyed them. It was like, oh, you just use Google; it's better. You just had that experience. That first search it was great. Bing always sucked because the experience wasn't as good as Google. Yeah. But if someone introduces this and it does a better job. I remember Ask Jeeves. Ask Jeeves. I remember Ask Jeeves. <laughs> he had all the ads with the dog. Yeah, yeah. Jeeves, and there was uh, Lycos. I don't know. Lycos, yeah. Loads of them. The search engine wars. Yeah. Uh, okay, man. So listen, tell me what you guys are working on now. Like, what is your big pillars of work? Yeah. Um, so I, I kind of think a lot of what we did last year was like building up this like big body of research. Like we wrote a lot of like white papers. We wrote a lot of like long form, like sort of research pieces. Uh, and this year I see sort of our, our main goal is like leveraging the bear market uh, to like beat those drums like until we're blue in the face. So like converting you know, Matt Pines is like 60 page white paper into, uh, like one pagers, uh, into like discrete bullet points, 
Um, to and, tweet threads. <laughs> a couple of seconds. Yeah. But, but yeah, like I think there's more research that I want to do. Um, there's more research that I want to, or not me do, but there's more research I want to fund um, that I think would be good. Uh, particularly around uh, like the China stuff. Like I, I really think one of the compelling arguments in DC for Bitcoin is just how well it aligns with uh, our needs sort of in, in sort of just like strategic competition with, with our adversaries. Um, but yeah, a lot of it is distilling the research that we've done over the past year, putting it into like digestible bite-sized forms and then just like promoting those ideas. So this conference that we're putting on, um, cash app has already spot, like, you know, they're our first sponsor, which was like amazing. Uh, we're going to be like looking for more sponsors for that event. Um, I think PubKey said they would like sponsor the alcohol, which would be awesome. Are uh, they the New York people? Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're like uh, Thomas and them. They're awesome. Yeah. Uh, you know they show all our games. I did not know that. Yeah. But they're, their bar is awesome. Like yeah. if you're ever in New York, you need to go to PubKey. And if you're a chess player in New York, like I am, uh, it's right next to Washington Square Park. So, uh, is that where all the old guys sit outside and play chess? Uh, there's a lot of the parks. But yeah, that's like where I like to play. So uh, it's also near... Um, uh, chess forum, which is like, uh, uh, like a, just a, it's a chess shop, but in the back they've got like these tables and people from all walks of life kind of go and play pickup games of chess. And so whenever I'm in New York, I sort of run the circuit of like chess forum, Washington square park to like gamble on chess with the hustlers and then like pub key. How good are you? I'm, I'm all right. Uh, like Jack Mauler's is way better than me, but he was like really, really good. I think on Lee Chess, I'm in like the last time I checked, I was in like the 55th, 60th percentile. So like I'm solid, and I, you know, on average probably beat the average person that like plays chess casually. But I'm by no means like good. That's what that's one of my goals for the new year is like to uh, get to like 2,000 ELO in chess. So I'm, I'm about like 1,700 right now. We should play. I can play. Um, but I I, pl- I don't have well, any strategy. Have you been to Bitcoin Park yet? Yeah, here in Nashville? Yeah. So they've got, Rod, I made Rod like keep chess boards at Bitcoin Park. Like, Let's play. Yeah, we'll rip it. Look, I'm, I'm not good. I don't, <laughs> I don't understand chess strategy. Yeah. I play and I move positions forward and I gradually try and find something. I yeah. just gradually, and I try and like look at every angle that you're coming in at. I don't understand all the you know, Queen's Gambit and all the different right. fucking strategies. I play Jack in El Salvador and it was another level of chess that I didn't even know existed at that time. Like, yeah, like he was talking me through what I was going to, like, if you do this, I'm going to do this. Like he knows the first like 20 moves. Oh, he's, he's a great chess player. Yeah. I mean, he, I played him in a blitz game in the Bitcoin magazine office here in Nashville. And like, he was like literally having a conversation with Odell about like lightning and like privacy, like a nuanced technical conversation about Bitcoin with Matt while playing me. And I'm, and I'm like decent, uh, he used probably less than 20 seconds of his like total time. There's like an increments. Every time you move, you get additional three seconds added to your clock, probably used less than 20 seconds over the course of like a 30 or 40 move game and barely looked at the board. And then he doesn't need to look at the board. And then at the conclusion of the game was just like, Oh wow, you're a really strong player. Uh, and I didn't even really know where I messed up. It just kind of reached a point where I was like, ah, I'm just positionally like losing this game. Like I, I'm good enough at chess to like, you know, equal material, but like, I've got doubled pawns on the F file. Like, you know, he's got a better control of the center. Like 
I was like, oh, I just, there's no way I win this. And he's like, oh yeah, you were doing great. But like here on move 14 and he puts the pieces back together, like replays the game. He's like, eh, like this was a bit of an error. Like, you know, knight f3, nah, not the best move. Maybe you should have played like here instead. He can play with his back turned to you and not even look at the board. Yeah, I can do that too. But I only against like, not great players. Yeah, like, but like how, how do you remember all the pieces are? Well, because it's just like sort of numbers, right? Like, you know, you're sort of thinking about like there's 64 squares. It's an eight by eight grid. So, you know, you have like A1, you know, B1, etc. like across. And then, you know, you have no, like, I know all this. I just like, it's, I still think it's insane. When you play enough chess, you can kind of just, I don't know, think it. about it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I watched this great film over the holiday about that, like, Famous chess player went crazy. Like they thought he was the greatest ever. You know, Bobby Fischer. Bobby Fischer. That's it. Yeah. That's an, that was incredible. Yeah. Do you know about this dude? No. He's like, the, would you say he's the greatest that ever lived? Well, so, okay. And this always like inspires debates in like chess, the chess world, because you have to understand like people are products of their times. Yeah. And so today, like, you know, we have chess engines that are orders of magnitude better than like any human could be. And so, uh, you can learn way more now than you could then. And so the engines, right. And so one way you can kind of look at who's the best player is like, well, not like, you know, would, you know, Paul Morphy beat Magnus Carlsen, but like how good was this given person relative to their contemporaries? Um, it's tough to kind of like span 250 years. Like the Paul Morphy is an example of a chess player from the, uh, like 1850s who was a young guy, um, really only played in his like late teenage years and early twenties. And his games are among the most studied, studied because they, uh, he was sort of famous for making these like crazy sacrifices and this sort of just like beautiful, like romantic, like swashbuckling style of chess where he's like doing moves that aren't really necessarily sound, but like, you know, in a timed game, like in the heat of the moment, you're like, wait, that's a free piece. I'm going to take it. Oh wait, another free piece. And he'll like sacrifice half of his pieces and then have this like crazy checkmate today. Like, you know, uh, with engines, with the level of precision that people play, you don't see that as, as often it's more, you know, like rigid. Didn't that happen in that Bobby Fischer game? Like, was it like game six against the Russian? Well, yeah, I think he played, uh, they say Spassky. Like, yeah, it was like the greatest, they refer to it in as like the greatest ever game of chess. I think there's several contenders, but I think that might be his like immortal game yeah. or whatever, like one of his immortal games, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a film worth watching. Also, watch uh, the Magnus Carlsen documentary. Yeah. This guy's insane. All right. Oh, so, speaking of chess and Bitcoin, I actually uh, wrote an article for chess about chess and Bitcoin where I interviewed Magnus Carlsen, Sam Bankman-Fried, and Jack Maulers. <laughs> You actually interviewed? Yeah, like all three of them. How did you get Max, Magnus Carlson? Emailed his manager. Wow. Said, That's, I yeah. heard Magnus, heard a rumor that Magnus is into Bitcoin. And he was like at a tournament and was like, sorry, he like probably won't respond. Uh, and then he was like, oh yeah, actually he has like, I didn't get to like talk to him, but I like sent questions and then his manager like asked him and then he emailed me like his, his answers back. I'd love to interview. I saw he did one, Lex Friedman did one with him, but he just went down a whole path. I didn't give a fuck about. So I'd love to interview. We should try and get him. You should. Yeah. Get Magnus. He, he, I think if I remember correctly, I could pull up the email after the interview, but I think he was like, yeah, my dad and I like sometimes like to trade it. Like, I think he was kind of interested in like the game of like, you know, trading. I don't know if he was like that into i didn't get the impression that he was like really 
a Bitcoiner or anything. You can imagine someone like his brain's interested in like, well, what is it? What is it about? It's a little bit like um, Kasparov's kind of getting closer because he does all the work with, with Alex. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> can I tell you my Kasparov story? Yeah, then it's I'll tell you so mine. <laughs> fucking embarrassing. So I went out to Oslo for the... Uh, uh, Human Rights Foundation Freedom Forum. Yeah, yeah, I was there too. And, uh, no, the previous one. And, and so I'm there with that. Uh, Alex and uh, uh, Gary Kasparov comes over. I'm like, I don't know who Gary Kasparov is. And I mm. kind of recognize him. And uh, Alex is like, oh, Pete, uh, you should meet Gary Kasparov. I'm like, are you that chess dude? <laughs> and he's like, yeah. They walk off and uh, Alex Glancy's like, Pete, I can't believe you just asked that to Gary Kasparov. <laughs> <laughs> so my, my story was like, I met Gary Kasparov. It, they did like the same, they did their conference in Miami like a year or two ago. Yeah. And I like, you know, Alex, do you want to meet Gary? I'm like, yes, yes, yes. Like, absolutely. So I like walk up to Gary. And I'm like, hi, like my name's David. It's such an honor to meet you. Like you actually sort of like taught me chess because when I was a kid, I had like the Nintendo DS app that was like, you know, Gary Kasparov teaches you chess. And like, I, I just want to say it's such an honor to like meet you. You're such an inspiration. And he just looks at me and goes, okay. And then she like walks <laughs> off. No, then like, I think he said the same word to both of us. Yeah. And then like, you know, you meet him, I met him later in like a, an event in like New York and it's like, Hey, let's talk about like Russia, Ukraine, and Bitcoin. Boom, and he's, he's like, off. boom, yeah. he's on. He wants to talk about it. So it's like, I, I kind of messed up. It's like, what am I going to say to this guy that he hasn't already heard a million times? But do you know what? One of my ultimate interviews I want to do, I want to get Gary Kasparov and Jack Myers at a table and talk about Bitcoin. That's what I want to do. I think, like, I think that's pretty doable. I think that, I know it's totally doable. They, I, I just, I don't know if Gary's ready on the Bitcoin thing yet. Well, that's, I, I think he should be reading BPI stuff, right? Because like Gary is such a big believer in democracy and his biggest passion is from what i can tell uh uh you know promoting like liberal democracy uh and so i think like that's probably why he's attracted to the work that alex is doing mm -hmm. uh, obviously he's like whatever his role is a president or on the board of like human rights foundation uh and i'm sure that's like what alex kind of told him to get him kind of to whet his appetite was like this is like a human rights technology this is a pro-democratic technology in the sense that it undermines like you know, closed societies and benefits like open societies. So if Gasparov's on the fence about, you know, Bitcoin, I, I might have to email Alex some of our, our, our work on this and do see it, if he'll dude. get Gary to read it. I mean, hopefully he's listened to this show. <laughs> All right, man. Okay. So listen, final question. Uh, how can people help? Because obviously you need help with what you're doing. How can people help? The work's super important. Yeah. Look, I love CoinCenter. I love everything they're doing. They advocate for public blockchains. You guys are focused on Bitcoin. Right. So like, I love what you're doing as well. And to me, it's like, has a different level of importance because it's just focusing on Bitcoin. You have our full support with anything you need. Any one of your team wants to come on the show. We've had nearly all of them. We'll have yeah. them all back. But like, how else can other people listen and help? Um, yeah, so I guess in brief, uh, engage with our work, share it on social media, follow our uh, account on Twitter. Uh, if Bitcoin has been good to you, uh, maybe consider donating. You know, we sort of entirely run on donations uh, and every dollar counts. Like we're on a shoestring budget. We've got an open sats page so you can donate there. You can donate on our website. Uh, if you're a company in the space and you want to get more involved, you can email me uh, or anyone can email me at dz at btcpolicy.org. Uh, but if you're a company and you want to talk to people in Washington about stuff you're doing, you want to collaborate with us, like hit us up. Um, and yeah, if you, if you run a Bitcoin company, uh, I would really encourage you to sponsor our event in, in DC. 
uh, we'll bring you out to our conference and, you know, you'll have the chance to talk with members of government and staffers about uh, your business and, uh, you know, the things that are on your mind when it comes to uh, policy and, and regulation. So, yeah, if you've got the means, uh, it's also a tax write-off for a 501c3. So if you're not one of the people that's super underwater this year and you have some capital gains to, to offset, it's a great way to do it. Um, but yeah, every dollar counts. Um, and if you can't give, uh, share our work. All right, man. Well, listen, look, uh, absolute pleasure getting to know you this last couple of years. Uh, you're always welcome on the show. You're just a great person to talk to. Um, uh, anything we can do to help, just reach out. Just keep doing your thing, man. It's like it's amazing. It's been amazing to watch, and uh, congratulations on all. Thank you. I can't thank you enough, man. Like having me and really all of the BPI fellows more than more than me because I feel like they're they're the real stars. Like having all of them on the show has done so much for us. Uh, like you know, we were uh, kind of a glorified blog, and uh, I think now we're more of a real think tank. And you you guys played a huge huge role in that. So wow. thank you. We're always looking for interesting people to talk to, and you just like <laughs> keep throwing them up. I mean. Like uh, Natalie Smolensky was like my favorite interview last year. Brilliant. She's brilliant. Like Troy, like watching him is brilliant. Yeah. Matthew, like these are all brilliant people and they got... That's my job. I just kind of find these cool people and bring them in. Oh, and we did just get... uh, I'll sort of drop this on the podcast. We just added a new fellow to BPI. So uh, we'll probably put something out on Twitter about this. But do you remember a couple weeks ago, there was that Harvard paper that like recommended that central banks like buy Bitcoin? Yeah, but wasn't it to like to 2% or 1%? Well, it was sort of a model of like, you know, depending on what your circumstance is. But uh, the economist at Harvard that wrote that paper uh, just joined BPI as a fellow. Let's get him on. So he'd be a great person to have on the podcast. What's his name? Uh, Matthew Ferranti. Okay. And where's he based? Uh, I think Cambridge for now. He's wrapping up his PhD. Cambridge, was that Massachusetts? Yeah. Massachusetts. Massachusetts? Yeah, you got it. How, how far? That's not far from New York, right? No. Uh, it's a pretty easy train ride. Yeah, let's make that, let's make that happen. Interestingly, is that why we got that response recently where the, like, the government was saying banks shouldn't be holding Bitcoin? I don't think that was related to the paper. No. 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 All right. Well, listen, we'll get them on. Uh, keep bringing them through. Keep doing your thing. Uh, we're here to support you, brother. Take care. Thanks so much. Okay, what do you make of that? Do you enjoy that? Now, if you haven't checked out my previous shows with David Zell, please do go and check them out. They're uh, in the show notes. I think it's three now we've made, and I've really enjoyed getting to know him over this last year or so. We chat offline quite a bit, and I think the work he's doing with the Bitcoin Policy Institute is it's not only important, but really is high-signal work from him. Like He's such a smart guy. He could have gone and done anything and probably earned shitloads of money, but he's decided to focus on Bitcoin, focus on this nonprofit, and focus on supporting the work of Bitcoiners. So if you can support what they're doing, there are links in the show notes. Please do go and give, give them a donation. We've done the same. And listen, if you've got any questions about this or anything else, please do reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. We're out here in Nashville. We're going to be heading out to Austin next week, hopefully going to hang out with a few Bitcoiners while we're in these two places. Like I said, if you want to get in touch, please do drop me an email. Otherwise, I'll see you all later in the week.